Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my second podcast in my series on Jonah. You know, it's incredible how such a short story in the Bible, when looked at more closely through adult eyes, unpacks so many biblical connections and deep lessons. Second Timothy in the New Testament, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, reminds us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is therefore useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then right before that, Paul says in 2 Timothy that studying Scripture makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And that's certainly true with this story of Jonah. It's way more than a whale of a tale. After our first podcast, we were left with so many questions, which is a typical literary trick of the ancient biblical writers. They wanted the listener or the reader to keep digging deeper and to ask lots of questions. They also want the reader to make connections, or we call these hyperlinks, to other biblical stories. Some people find it helpful to think of the Bible as a quilt, with each square telling a story, but then the stories are interconnected, and together they form this amazing and true story that points us to Jesus. We're going to uncover more in this podcast about how this small four-chapter story captures the essence of the whole biblical narrative. For the information contained in this podcast lesson, I'm relying on the Word of God and some really great commentary by the authors of The Bible Project. So let's review what we know so far about Jonah and his situation. The story takes place mid-700 BC. Jonah is a prophet, and he's been successful in reestablishing the boundaries of Israel, at least for a short period of time. The story of Jonah has God asking Jonah to speak to the Ninevites, who were people living in a very great city. That's Bible code for evil, bloodthirsty city called Nineveh. And he's supposed to warn them that they need to change their ways. Now, this is not surprising to us because that's the sort of thing that prophets did. They warned people that they needed to straighten up and fly right, so to speak, or it wouldn't end well for them. We then discovered that Jonah may not be that great of a prophet, or at least his commitment to the job comes into question because instead of obeying God, Jonah gets on a ship headed in the opposite direction of Nineveh, toward Tarshish, which is known for its gold and its worldly treasures. It seems like Jonah has decided for himself what is good and bad, and he is in essence trying to create his own Eden. Well, the listener's amused because we know a thing or two about God, and namely, you can't hide from him. In today's podcast, we're going to see how Things are really upside down in the story of Jonah. In fact, Jonah becomes sort of an anti-prophet. 
Isaiah 53 describes a prophet figure who dies for our transgressions. Let's see what Jonah's almost death brings about. We're going to see that Jonah's rebellion is actually going to become the means of salvation for the nation. The overarching theme of the Bible is really personified in Jonah. In the words of the Bible Project writers, no human can escape God's purpose. Even human evil will be used by God for his purpose. Our response to sin needs to be fess up, not shut up. We should not deny it or try to patch it up using our own schemes. We need to own it, turn from it, and again, in the words of the Bible Project, trust that it will serve God's purpose, even though we may think it's probably the opposite of God's purpose. Now, in Jonah chapter 1, we see that Jonah's on a ship with a bunch of pagan sailors who are terrified when the seas start getting really rough. These are hardened sailors, so it must have been a pretty bad storm. In fact, the Bible says, The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break apart. All the sailors were afraid and called out to their own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, and he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Interesting that the sailors, though pagans, knew that the storm was brought up by some kind of supernatural power, and so they're praying to their gods to make it stop. We're told then that the captain of the ship is beside himself. When he goes down below and he finds Jonah asleep in the bowels of the ship, and so he commands him, get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we won't perish. So then the sailors cast lots. Now, this is a superstitious act to, you know, find out who's responsible for the storm. But here we see God intervenes to make the lots cast point to Jonah. Ha <laughs> ha, pretty clever. So let's see what Jonah does when the finger is pointed in his direction. First, Jonah identifies himself as a Hebrew who worships the Lord. He says, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Well, that seems encouraging. Seems Jonah has not yet forgotten who he is and who God is. Jonah apparently had admitted to the sailors at some point that he was running away from God. And well, (laughs) this admission totally freaks out the sailors. Remember, they're pagans, and yet they know enough to be afraid of Jonah's God and that running away from him was a bad idea. They asked Jonah what they should do to make the storm stop. Well, Jonah says in chapter 1, verse 12, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Well, now we might be thinking, finally, Jonah's starting to remember who he is, who God is, and he's admitting his guilt. But remember, the story of Jonah is filled with irony. It's upside down. These pagan sailors did not want to end Jonah's life to spare their own. 
Instead, the Bible says that the sailors start to row back towards land, but the sea grew even wilder than before. And so the Bible says they cried to the Lord, Oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. The Bible then says that the sailors took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. It continues, it says that at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. So much is going on here. First, recall Jonah is a prophet. We know from our other Old Testament stories that when humans are violent or destructive or even self-centered, their guilt often brings the blood of innocent people upon them, and then God brings judgment. But we also know from the story of Noah, for example, that God loves humanity. After all, we're created in his image, and he doesn't want to destroy us. So God often uses a human prophet or deliverer or intercessor like Noah, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, to appeal to God's mercy on their behalf. But we also know the Bible's a collection of true stories, and as such, well, they're filled with real people who have real faults, and sometimes the people God appoints, they fail personally by being fearful, or the people they're appointed to help don't listen to them. What all these human stories are supposed to do is to help us to recognize all the more we need a Savior. We need God to come to earth and save us from ourselves. So here, once again, we remain hopeful that maybe Jonah's the one. He is admitting that he's running from God. But we didn't really hear any remorse, did we? We think, oh, how noble he's ending his life to save others. But is Jonah really noble? We have to continue to read on. Because the story of Jonah is filled with irony, did you notice who it is that turns to the true God and repents and worships him and makes sacrifices and vows? Did you notice who it was? It was the pagan sailors. Jonah said that he feared the Lord, but it was actually the pagan sailors who demonstrated with their actions that they actually feared and respected the Lord. See how God is using Jonah's bad behavior to actually save others? So, unlike other prophets we know of whose selfless behavior, like Moses in Exodus or Abraham in Genesis, offer their lives so that others might live, here we're seeing that it's actually Jonah's bad behavior that's saving others. Right before chapter 2 starts, we read that God provides a great fish to swallow Jonah. This great fish 
notice it doesn't say whale, is supposed to get us to hyperlink to other biblical ideas of large sea creatures. Now, here's a little ancient Near East mythology history. The pagan nations around Israel, among other things, worshipped the monsters of the deep. Kind of makes sense because the waters of the sea were considered mysterious and ominous and dangerous. So it was probably a good idea to worship the unknown creatures of the deep as an insurance policy. The Israelites, however, they looked at sea creatures as powerful, but they knew that they were still controlled by God. Look at what we learned at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. It says, Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind. Now, in the Bible, you'll see words like leviathan, sea monsters, etc. Now, these were actually used by the authors as metaphors for evil and chaos that were under the control of God. The authors paid homage to their pagan neighbors by kind of playing on this idea of mythological creatures, but their God, the true God, was not afraid of these creatures, but instead would use them for his own purpose. This is a quote by an author, Philip Carey. He wrote this book called Jonah, and this is how he explains this idea of the great fish. He says, the great fish is a comic version of an ancient nightmare, the great monster of the deep that represents chaos and destruction, the flooding and the undoing of the world. In bearing witness to the power of the God of Israel, Scripture often reckons with the nightmares of ancient Near Eastern mythology and outs the images to its own use. In Jonah, the nightmare is turned into a comedy. The creature that swallows Jonah is not one of the terrible monsters of the deep. It's just a great big fish. Call it a monster if you wish. It's no big deal. Wherever you go in the world, the Lord who created it is there before you and can prepare a way for you, even if the way is a great big fish. I like that. So again, the story of Jonah is a story of the unexpected. Now, when the listeners heard that Jonah had been swallowed by a great fish, they would think, well, that was a short story. He's a goner. Jonah's dead. But then we hear that he was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. We're left to wonder, well, what happened to him afterwards? Remember, sea monsters are bad, evil, chaotic. Ezekiel talks about a great sea monster that lies in the midst of the river. And here he's using this idea metaphorically to talk about Egypt. Psalm 124 talks about being swallowed alive by evil people if the Lord had not been on their side. 
being swallowed up would typically conjure images of being overcome by evil. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 16 says, all your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Hosea chapter 8 verse 8 says, Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. So the author of Jonah wants us to start to think of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish as a parallel to Israel going into exile. Yet, because of God, they're still alive and they still have a future. So the author wants you to ask, is God going to intervene here? He sent the fish. What's next? I know you listened to that and you're still in the back of your mind thinking, but what happened to Jonah? Was it a real fish? Was it a whale? Okay, what kind of fish? How big was it? In what chamber of the fish did he hang out for three days? How could this happen? What did it smell like? How much room did he have? I've actually seen one children's Bible story that shows Jonah building a small fire in the belly of the fish. Mm, pretty sure that didn't happen. Okay, so here's the thing. Jonah was not wearing a GoPro. We don't have undersea footage of what actually happened. We know what the authors choose to tell us. They say he was swallowed by a great fish. Jesus also refers to Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. When you see Jesus, feel free to ask him about more specifics. We, however, are going to move on with the story. What we do know is that this should have meant certain death for Jonah. But God, who is the creator of all things, uses this great fish as a vehicle of salvation for Jonah. Now, that's a pretty incredible fact. Well, let's look at how long Jonah was in the fish. The Bible tells us three days and three nights. This phrase sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? So you can look at your concordance and see where else in the Bible is this phrase used. You'll find that the phrase three days and three nights is actually quite common, and it's used a few different ways. Sometimes it refers to a time of testing or danger or nearness to death like when it's used in 1 Samuel or 2 Kings or Hosea. Sometimes three days and three nights is a term used to describe like an ominous journey, like the journey the Israelites took to Mount Sinai, or the three days of Abraham taking Isaac to be sacrificed. Each time the phrase is used, it appears that something bad will happen, resulting in certain death. And then God intervenes, and this near-death or even death experience results in new life. Okay, so I'll bet you're now thinking about the New Testament, where Jesus talks about this three days. 
Matthew and Luke both quote Jesus as saying, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus, of course, is talking about his own death and then resurrection or new birth. So cool, right? All right, let's start to look at chapter two. Well, this is actually a poem, and this is pretty amusing. Who has time to compose a poem where, when they're literally in the belly of a fish? Well, apparently Jonah. I guess one could ask, what else did he have to do to pass the time? Now, the ancient Hebrew writers often use this element of poetry to make a point, but in a metaphorical way. Poetry, honestly, is used throughout the Old Testament. How can you spot it? Well, in many Bibles, you'll see that the font is different, or maybe it's indented. For example, did you know there's a short poem in Genesis 1? Wait, what? I know. Take a look. The very first book of the Bible and the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, is a really short poem. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So poetry is used when the authors want you to focus on something specific. Many times, poems or songs, same thing, will appear right before or right after people are delivered from something bad. For example, after God parted the waters in Exodus so his people could escape the Egyptians on dry land, Miriam, who is Moses' sister, breaks out in this awesome poem, this song. Now, here in Jonah, the author is using a poem to signal to us either deliverance has happened or is about to happen. As we've said before, the depths of the sea is considered a very scary place and is used as imagery for death or the grave. Jonah uses a lot of imagery, which then, as a hyperlink, takes us to Miriam's thankful poem about God delivering the Israelites from certain death in the sea. So we're going to quickly look at Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, and I want you to listen to Miriam's poem. Listen for these words, hurled into the sea, salvation, cast into the sea, drowned in the sea, down into the depths. This is what her song says. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled 
into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders, you stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Okay, now keep that in mind. Now, the author of Jonah wants us to realize that Jonah is actually thinking about the Exodus story when he compiles this poem or prayer to God from the belly of the fish. Listen to Jonah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the deep and the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Oh my gosh, so much richness in this poem. But we'll ponder the meaning until next time. In the meantime, I do want you to meditate on a few things. Has Jonah repented? Is he recognizing how he literally has been saved from Sheol, which in Hebrew is the grave? And if he does recognize his near miss with death, is he going to live a different life now? What I also want you to meditate on, has there been a time in your life where 
God literally has pulled you up from the depths of despair. And if so, do you give glory to God for your second chance? How has this experience changed you? Whose example have you been following? Jonah, who is talking the talk, or the pagan sailors who turned believers and are actually walking the walk? Be a blessing to others by sharing your belly of the fish story with others and have a blessed day.